This is Carol Foster of 2 Timothy 2.15 Resources, and I am so excited that you're going to join me today as we study God's Word. The response new Messianic believers give when asked why they initially visited a Messianic congregation is, we knew there had to be more. As we study together, we will begin to see that yes, indeed, there has to be more. For additional study aids to assist you in studying along with us, go to our website, sectim.org. I'm so glad that you're able to join me today. We are currently in the book of Shmot, or Exodus, chapter 10, verses 21 through 29. We're studying the ninth plague brought upon Egypt by Yahweh. We've discovered from our previous studies that there was more than one purpose to these plagues. The obvious one is that Pharaoh was to let the Israelites go so that they might serve and worship the one true God. They were also to be freed from slavery in order that they might travel to and take possession of the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov. We've also discovered that by Yahweh showing his supreme power and strength over Pharaoh's many oppositions and trickery, made a mockery out of Pharaoh. This was something that the Israelites would and still do tell their children to this very day. Then there was even a grander purpose as we read in chapter 9 verses 14 through 16. For this time I will send my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain, in order to show you my power, and in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. The Israelites were to know that Yahweh was the one true God, and they were to show Israel and all all of Egypt, Yahweh's power, in order to proclaim my name in all the earth. Now, in this ninth plague, we find that Yahweh had begun this plague in a slightly different manner than he had the previous eight plagues. I want to read verses 21 through 23 of this chapter. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. There was no warning given to Pharaoh this time. We read that this account follows immediately on the heels of Yahweh removing the locusts from the land. It was as if Pharaoh and the rest of Egypt might have just blinked their eyes and suddenly there was darkness in the land. Darkness so thick that they could not see one another. We should also take note of the fact that again in the land of Goshen where the Israelites dwelt they were not affected by this heavy darkness. We're also told how long this plague lasted. It lasted three days. So basically all the Egyptians, including Pharaoh, were confined to their homes as they couldn't even see around them. 
Our previous study of this plague of darkness showed that the word darkness implies that they had to grope to find anything. They were virtually blind because this darkness was so thick that it could be felt. We next see that it was Pharaoh who called for Moshe this time. Moshe did not go to Pharaoh and tell him, this is what Yahweh had done or this is what Yahweh is going to do. After the previous eight plagues, I'm sure that there was no doubt in Pharaoh's mind what had happened or, more exactly, who had caused this to happen, as we read in verse 24. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Even your little ones may go with you. If you've missed our last session, when we discovered the importance of this concession on the part of Pharaoh, it is available for you to listen to at www.hebrewnationonline.com Torah teaching, there has to be more. You can listen to any of the previous teachings from this current series and overview of the Tanakh, as well as our previous studies as well. Now it's Moshe's turn to tell Pharaoh what Yahweh's demands are. We read this in verses 24 through 26. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice them to the Lord our God. Therefore, our livestock too shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we shall take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know with what we shall serve the Lord. Although various types of sacrifices and burnt offerings were specified and regulated later in the Torah, given at Mount Sinai, as found in the book of Aikra, or Leviticus, chapters 1 through 7, it's apparent here that both Moshe and Pharaoh understood what these terms meant. Sacrifices, animals killed and eaten with and before Yahweh, according to the revealed concept that if you are to live, something alive must die in your place. And burnt offerings, animals burnt entirely as an exclusive gift to Yahweh rather than cooked and shared proportionately by Yahweh's priests and worshippers, were both practiced at very early times in human history and in the religion of the Israelite patriarchs as found in the book of Bereshit, or Genesis. Moshe did, however, indicate rather explicitly in his reply to Pharaoh that some aspects of the Israelite sacrificial system were still to be revealed. Moshe and the Israelites could not presume that what they so far understood about how, when, and why to provide sacrifices and burnt offerings to Yahweh would not be altered once all the nation had met with him formally in worship. Moshe could reasonably assume that the people would have to use some of them, the animals, in worshiping the Lord, but he could not be sure how many, or even whether or not entire categories, such as all lambs of a certain age, might not be needed. His answer was not stalling. It was a fully honest answer which also served as a polite way of declining Pharaoh's inadequate offer, using factual, respectful language in this bargaining process. However, we should note that in the original text, Moshe's continuing emphatic use of the Hebrew word abad, serve, and or worship, 
He knew that Israel had been forced to serve Abad, Pharaoh, but he longed for the time when the nation would with, with all its heart, serve and worship Abad, Yahweh. As we move on, we read of Pharaoh's refusal and Moshe's prophetic play on his words. This is found in verses 27 through 29. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Beware, do not see my face again. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, You are right. I shall never see your face again. There is nothing unexpected in Pharaoh's reaction. His refusal to allow the Israelites to leave was entirely consistent with Yahweh's plan as originally revealed to Moshe in chapter 3, verse 19 and continued in chapter 4, verse 21 and seen thereafter. The careful reader knows that until the terms of chapter 4, verse 23 were fulfilled that is, the tenth plague's death of the Egyptian firstborn Pharaoh certainly would not let the Israelites leave Egypt. Pharaoh then stated verbally that all bargaining was over. He would not consent voluntarily to a complete exodus of the Israelites, in spite of the pressure on him from his people and his court advisors, and in spite of the mounting severity of the plagues thus far. He could not bring himself to grant the demands of the one true God of those he had enslaved. So he addressed Moshe with a threat containing three clauses that each said essentially the same thing. Don't let me see you again. It was not a modest threat, but one that was underscored with the stronger possible warning that Moshe would be put to death if he came back again. Moshe's reply could be translated like this. You've said the very thing. I will not keep seeing your face. The force of his reply, in other words, was to tell Pharaoh that Pharaoh himself had essentially predicted the future. Moshe was getting out of Egypt for good, along with all of Israel and even some Egyptians, and he and they would never return. Moshe would not be stuck in the land of oppression. He would not have to keep dealing with a disobedient and stubborn Pharaoh. And the Israelite people would not have to continue suffering under the cruel hands of the taskmasters and harsh conditions of their slavery. Soon all the miseries and bond of Egypt would be history. The Israelites were about to leave and therefore Moshe could tell Pharaoh that his words had more significance than he realized. It was just about over. They would not deal with each other face to face much longer. Not because Pharaoh had won, but because he was about to lose. In fact, Moshe's words likely meant even more, that he and Pharaoh would literally never see each other again. We'll be looking at this more closely a little later in our study. Pharaoh's words contained a death threat. The day you see my face, you will die. That Moshe could hardly ignore. 
These words presumably would have held a special repugnancy for him since he had already been sentenced to death by an earlier pharaoh, as we've read previously. And he had lived 40 years in exile, knowing that if he went back to Egypt and was in fact seen by that pharaoh, let alone by the relatives of the man he had killed, he would be put to death. Now another pharaoh had made a remarkably parallel threat Moshe's anger at having to be subject to such double jeopardy would seem entirely understandable under these circumstances. Pharaoh's consistent refusal to bend his will under Yahweh's and to allow the Israelites their exodus had always been a certainty because Yahweh had so decreed it. Under such circumstances, Moshe could hardly be expected to become angry when Pharaoh acted just as Yahweh had predicted he would and caused him to do. On the other hand, Yahweh had certainly not moved the king to make this death threat. It was Pharaoh's own idea and was outrageous in three ways. First, it violated the immunity that Moshe should have enjoyed as a prophet of Yahweh. Since Moshe spoke not on his own, but was a spokesman for Yahweh, Pharaoh's argument should have been with Yahweh, not Moshe. This kind of violation of the immunity of a prophet in the ancient world represented a serious breach of religion and law. Secondly, it was mean-spirited and vindictive. Pharaoh had been given chance after chance to allow the Israelites' exodus, and even when he himself proposed terms for its happening, he had reversed himself when his terms had not been met in spite of clear warnings of the consequences. Now, instead of acknowledging his complicity and or admitting his own inconsistency, he accused Moshe of having done something worthy of death. And thirdly, it was cowardly. Pharaoh rested his animosity toward the Israelites on the assumption that they were Egypt's potential enemies. The attempt to silence and intimidate Moshe by a death threat was in fact a tactic, however poorly conceived, to try to silence and intimidate the Israelites in general. The various approaches of the past had failed. Now, telling Moshe he could no longer represent his own people, disqualifying him from his calling under penalty of death was a cheap end run around the abject failure of Pharaoh's ill-conceived and paranoid political policies. Pharaoh was trying to get rid of the problem of Yahweh's demands by preventing Yahweh's chosen messenger from bringing those demands to his attention. As we move on to the tenth and final plague, I want to divide this account into sections as there is so much to learn from it. The first section I've titled, The Great Sign of Sovereignty Announced, Tenth Plague Predicted at Death of the Firstborn. This is found in chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. This section of text has three-part structure in which the announcement of the tenth plague, that of the death of the firstborn, verses 4 through 8, is carefully sandwiched between two reminders of what previously had been revealed. First, that the tenth plague would be effective at producing the exodus and that the Israelites were to be financially prepared for it by obtaining wealth from the Egyptians, verses 1 through 3. 
and second, that the whole series of prior plagues had not resulted in the exodus because that was the way Yahweh had planned things. Verses 9 and 10. This surrounding of new narrative material with reminder narrative material has the effect of helping orient the reader and or the listener to the fact that the plague of death on the firstborn and the resulting exodus of Israel from Egypt was not merely an event in itself, but the culminating act of a long process controlled by Yahweh and brought to fruition exactly as he had predicted it before any of the process had even started. Moshe was writing this story not merely to help his fellow Israelites trust Yahweh as things happened, but to help them learn to trust that Yahweh is the one who makes things happen in the first place, as part of a great redemptive plan for the benefit of his people. In verses 1 through 3 of chapter 11, we read of the review of the plans for the final plague and the enrichment of the Israelites by the Egyptians. These verses state, Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people, that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. We see that verses 1 through 3 are clearly presumption, referring in summary fashion, not word for word, but conceptually, to what Yahweh had told Moshe in chapter 3, verses 19 through 22. Let me read those. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go, except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. But... Every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus you will plunder the Egyptians. And we read again in chapter 7 verses 3 through 5 But I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt to great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. Now at least Moshe knew that the final plague was at hand and the long series of announcements, warnings, plagues and refusals by Pharaoh was coming to an end. Pharaoh and the Egyptians had indeed been humiliated many times over. Yahweh had shown them repeatedly that it was he who had true power and that their own gods were ineffective nothings.
Now was the time for the ultimate demonstration of his sovereignty in the form of a punishment of such magnitude that Pharaoh would certainly not merely allow the Israelites to leave Egypt, but would require that they do so. He was going to drive them out completely, as we read in verse 1 of our focal passage. In verses 2 and 3, we see that these verses strongly bring to the reader's attention a sense of the psychological distance that had developed between Pharaoh and the rest of the Egyptians. This is something that a casual reader may not have previously fully appreciated, although evidence of it were certainly already mentioned in earlier portions of the story. Anyone with an ounce of sense among the Egyptians had long since realized that resistance to the Israelites' God, Yahweh, was useless. Indeed, the Egyptians in general had come to respect the Israelites, presumably partly out of fear and partly out of practicality, and saw their Pharaoh's policy of continued resistance to the Exodus for what it was, a fanatical, destructive, hopeless stance that was doing nothing but harm. The virtually uniform consensus among the Egyptians was that the Israelites were entitled to leave Egypt and that their God had shown himself fully capable of ruining the country if they were not allowed to do so. The only person who could not yet see this was Pharaoh. And this was because Yahweh had blinded him to reason as a punishment for his oppression and also as a means of demonstrating his divine power over the greatest human potentate of that era. The Egyptians' attitude toward the Israelites was not entirely a simple matter of normal human reasoning. Yahweh's plan was to provide his people with the financial wherewithal to survive as a nation on the move until they arrived at and settled in Canaan. So he supernaturally influenced the Israelites' Egyptian neighbors to give them valuables simply for the asking and caused them to think highly of Moshe as well. The word translated as ask in these verses have the concept that the Egyptians were compelled to give to the Israelites. This was in direct opposition to the increasing bitterness Pharaoh was displaying toward him. In verses 4 through 8, we read of the announcement of the final decisive plague to Pharaoh. Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborns of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel a dog will not even bark whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. This is all the time we have for this session. 
Join us next time as we continue our study of Shemot, or Exodus, and the plagues against Pharaoh and the Egyptians, all because of his stubbornness and disobedience to Yahweh's command to let my people go. Remember that if you've missed any part of this current series, an overview of the Tanakh, you can catch up or listen again to any session by going to www.hebrewnationonline.toriteaching. There has to be more. There are also additional reference materials and study aids available on my ministry website, www.sectim.org. Subscribe to my website to receive notification of updated materials and additional study resources. Shalom. Thank you for joining us today as we delve into the beautiful truths of God's Word to indeed discover that there has to be more. I pray that the Word applied to your daily life will bring a deeper understanding of His love letter written just to you. Let me remind you that we have additional study aids to assist you with our studies together on our website. S-E-C-T-I-M.org. May this day fill you with the love of God, joy, and shalom. Nothing missing, nothing broken in your life.